episode 61, What You Need to Know Today About Patient Registries. Kyle Brown from Patient Crossroads explains. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. We've all heard the term patient registries, and in the past, many in our industry would have said that they are the private domain of researchers, academics, and maybe patient organizations. But the universe of those interested in developing patient registries is growing, especially where it relates to rare diseases and oncology. In order to improve the standard of care overall, I think we're all starting to realize that patients and their providers must have access to accurate non-clinical data, clinical data, longitudinal health data, and all of this data at scale. Mobile devices, sensors, and electronic health records have expanded our ability to collect this data, but someone needs to aggregate and curate it. Registries, open source registries, I might add emphatically, are going to be the way towards this future. Today, I speak with Kyle Brown from Patient Crossroads. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin Healthcom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Kyle. Thank you. You are the CEO and founder of Patient Crossroads. Do you want Correct. to give us the overview? Sure. So Patient Crossroads, what we do is collect medical information directly from the patient community, which can then be used by various different research organizations to help discover treatments for rare diseases up to large, very common disease. The difference of our approach is we actually go direct to the patient community and allow patients to participate in the research, to provide information, detailed information about their medical history, genetic testing results, what providers they see, very detailed information. Patients aren't actually hiring you. I mean, someone else hires you and then mm -hmm. you collect the data from patients. Is that the case? That's right. So we have about 70 registries covering over 400 diseases now. We're about a third advocacy organizations will hire us, a third pharmaceutical companies, and a third the government. We have registries from two moms sitting around the kitchen table for an ultra rare type of disease to really large-scale registries like the National Down Syndrome Registry, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health. Why do the organizations hire you? In other words, why would a pharmaceutical company hire you? So a pharma company will generally want to hire us to make various different decisions. If you're talking about a rare disease, what they want to understand is how many people have the disease, what are their symptoms, how do they get diagnosed, what doctors diagnose them, where do they live? Because if, if you can't answer the basic questions, no pharmaceutical company is going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in, in research in that disease area if you, if you can't quantify it. So often pharma in a rare disease will want to collect the baseline information about the disease so they can decide if they want to get into that business, quite frankly. Most of the time when pharma tends to hire you, it's in the early commercialization stages and they're deciding whether or not to even pursue a particular molecule that they may have the opportunity to pursue. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. They, you know, The other is it, it really depends, and, and you hit on it, it depends on where they are in this, the life cycle, right? So if they haven't invested in a molecule in that particular disease yet, yes, they would start really early on. But we also can come in, you know, phase two clinical trials, phase one clinical trials. 
They'll hire us to quantify the patient population, prepare them for recruiting for the phase three trials. And the other reason they hire us is for post-market surveillance. So after a drug is on the market, they'll actually, in many cases, particularly in a rare disease, be subject to post-market surveillance types of requirements, REMS requirements from the FDA. How do you get the information from the patients? We generally will will partner with advocacy organizations. So maybe I could just give you an example. Absolutely. So Jazz Pharmaceuticals, they're here in the Bay Area. They have a drug for narcolepsy. They wanted to collect information about narcolepsy to better understand the community, better understand how their drug is used in the community. So they've actually partnered with several different research advocacy organizations. Narcolepsy Now is one. Wake Up Narcolepsy is another. So multiple advocacy organizations are involved in this registry, and they promote the registry out to the community. The way that we work with Jazz is we are the trusted gatekeeper to this patient data. We don't share contact information with the advocacy organizations or JAS. We act as kind of this clearinghouse of data that the patients themselves provide. So the advocacy groups are responsible for marketing, outreach, raising awareness of the registry, and promoting to the community why it's important to share your data for research. So the patients come into the registry, they sign a consent form online, and then they'll take one or more medical questionnaires, pretty you know, basic information about their disease, again, how they were diagnosed, do you sleep through the night, you know, things like that. And then they'll upload confirmatory testing, sleep tests, things like that, direct from the patient community. Patients know a lot more about disease than I think people give them credit for. And we've done, there's been numerous publications that do show that there is a direct correlation between patients uploading data and the accuracy of that compared to their clinical charts. So by going straight to that patient community, you can actually get a lot of information about a particular disease. You don't have to read any more than a paragraph in any op-ed about registries without running across the phrase garbage in, garbage out. I mean, mm-hmm. th- there's some pretty big, bad examples of registries with methodologies that include yeah. some, some pretty suspicious practices. You know, like one, one I was reading, they were actually, if a field was left blank, there was just default data that they would just insert in that field, which is... <laughs> You know, just but, this is yeah. the default answer. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, it is a little scary. And then basically it raises this whole big question. What's sure. the value of this data if you, it's of questionable accuracy? And, and what are people using it for? You know, there could be yeah. some very terrible results of people relying on a source that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. How does what you're doing mitigate or minimize or or redress that from happening? We actually have a, a little different model where the patients opt in, they, they complete all this information, but then we will review that data. So we have a staff of genetic counselors. We like genetic counselors. They know a little bit about lots of diseases. They will review the patient-provided data. If something doesn't make sense, they'll contact that patient and we can actually verify that information. If the patient's uploaded testing results that they receive from the doctor, or more and more what we find is genetic testing. So we have many registries where the patients complete medical questionnaires and then they'll upload a copy of their genetic test result direct from the lab and we will review that information and transcribe it 
so that it's now usable because when testing results come in, often they're, you know, different formats from different labs. Someone's got to drive the keyboard. So we can do that, drive the keyboard, make this information now searchable, actionable. And we've been very successful at recruiting, for example, Exxon skipping trials, where you have to know, you know, they have a skip and this Exxon and they've, they're walking or they've been on steroids. And we do this for muscular dystrophy in particular. Asking the patients to provide the data is one thing. Reviewing it is another step in the process. How scalable is that? I mean, it sounds like because it requires individual reach outs and mm -hmm. actual interaction with individuals that it would be expensive to scale. Yep. Depends what you're doing. Often what we'll do is we will work with the key opinion leaders in the space and come up with a quality protocol, if you will. And we'll then develop algorithms to automate a lot of this. So we can highlight just those particular patients that, that may have outlier information and correct that. But generally our opinion is, you know, cast a wide net. Get as many people into the registry that says they have narcolepsy, let them in. And then stratify that data based on the quality of the information that they provide to you. So that's the approach that we've taken. We've done a lot of automated algorithm type of statusing, which is great for getting the high level stuff. It just depends on how deep that you need to go. And back to your original question of where in the development process do they bring you in? So early in the process, if they're just trying to, to, if a pharma company is just trying to understand how many people have the disease, you know, the, the level of rigor there necessary is less, right? When you start recruiting for clinical trials, what you're doing is pre-screening candidates for trials. They're going to have to get screened again to go into the trial anyway. So we're pre-screening these folks and we can get pretty darn good on that. So again, not everyone's going to be qualified for that trial. So the number of people you need to put through that process is less, but the rigor is higher. If you are following people post-market, this data is going to go to the FDA. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be hands-on. And that's why collecting clinical trial information and post-market data submitted to the FDA is so expensive because the level of quality required is very high at that point. And I would also venture to guess that if you were attempting to use this data in order to make diagnosis decisions or to assess the effectiveness of any given treatment methodology, that also the requirements for accurate data would be very high. You know, there's also, you know, the marketing angle of it, right? If you're talking about, you know, does this particular if you're not submitting it to the FDA, right? If a pharma company just wants to understand how, how is our drug perceived versus, you know, this other drug in the marketplace, again, that requires a, a lower level of rigor. It just depends on what you're going to do with that particular data point. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at with mm -hmm. um, my last comment, which was if you are using the data in order to attempt to more accurately diagnose a patient mm -hmm. or if you are attempting to use the data in order to assess the effectiveness of one treatment modality versus another, mm -hmm. then the accuracy and probably the scope of the data collected is going to be completely quintessential, I would expect. Right? Yeah. And, you know, the diagnosis comment's tough, right? I mean, we're not trying to diagnose people. That's providing medical advice, so we can't do that. We're not MDs. 
but we can give them back information and we can give that information to the doctor as well. Well, indeed, but wouldn't MDs be the end user of the information? Well, maybe that should be a question. Who's using this data and to, yeah. what, to what end? If I mean, a, uh-huh. a pharmaceutical companies doing clinical or marketing aside, you know, so if I'm a yep. provider, how can I best use this info? Yeah, so often well, the users of this data fall into a couple different groups. Uh, pharma, we've already talked about how they're going to use the data, but researchers use this data a lot as well. And the researchers are generally in an academic setting, working on grants, trying to answer specific questions. But what you're asking is for a doctor. Doctors generally, you know, there's 7,000 rare diseases. They can't possibly understand every one of these. So what we find is many of the patients will take their information from the registry because they've collected records from all, all the different EHRs and, and cobbled it all together into the registry. They'll walk into the doctor's appointment with their phone and, or their iPad or printout and show them their medical information and use that as a source to help to educate the doctor about their personal disease care. But you know we don't pretend to use these registries for actual diagnostics of a patient that's that has to be up to the healthcare provider but it's very useful for the patients to take this information to their doctors in a clinical setting what i'm understanding is that there's definitely kind of a continuum of registry usage i mean obviously that's you've right. got to collect the data then you have the registry but yeah. as a registry you know a provider of registries it's mm-hmm. not within your bailiwick uh, or your scope to mm-hmm. analyze the data that's in the registry, but you do have it so that yes. end users can aggregate that information perhaps in order to better understand what aspects of various diseases or to improve quality standards or to understand what a population, you know, what is best practice care. Exactly. And then interestingly, I hadn't heard, I mean, it makes total sense that if you're a patient, you could also use that data, you know, your own data in order to help a provider understand what the various important aspects of your disease or your your own particular markers might be. Absolutely. I can't remember which disease it was, but I remember a, a specific case where one of our registries, they discovered that pain was involved and the doctors never considered pain as, you know, a symptom of this particular disease. And some of the patients started taking their records into the doctor and said, Look, 80% of the people that have this disease have pain in the, you know, foot or whatever it was. And it was interesting because they were using the registry to help educate the physicians because, you know, again, the physicians can't possibly understand all these rare diseases. So that seems to be a very popular thing in the patient community. We give the data to them, you know, the de-identified aggregated charts and graphs of everyone in the registry. We let the patients see that. It's an educational process. But out of that, we can also work with advocacy groups to develop care considerations, for example. You know, standards of care, that has more of a formal connotation. But being able to understand what a traditional care regimen is in the population, you can totally get that out of a patient registry provided by patients. And that brings up an interesting point. You know, I was talking to Geraldine Garon, Dr. Geraldine Garon, who works for WikiHealth, the Wiki Foundation. And similarly to Wikipedia, what they're attempting to do is democratize health data. And one of the things that she said was really interesting, which is that 
there are so many factors that impact a patient's health or patient outcomes that have nothing to do with their clinical care. In other words, there was actually Mm -hmm. a cancer drug that was proven to work much better if the patient was in a committed relationship, you know, had Mm -hmm. a a spouse or, you know, another Mm -hmm. than those that were, were, you know, singles. If you're the registry, you know, the purveyor of registries, I would think it would be very difficult to understand what information should you collect and what information should you discard or, mm-hmm. you know, like the the number of potential data points is quantumly exponential. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Our recommendation is is always, for gosh sakes, let's get started. We have a, a base set of surveys that we make available to any advocacy group. However, the the process that that we recommend is engage with the key opinion leaders in your disease area. You know, engage with the researchers that understand this the best. I guarantee they know what questions to ask. But the problem is they end up wanting to ask too much and no patient's ever going to complete it. I mean, we've had registries launch with like 300 questions. Nobody wants to sit down and take a 300-question survey. So our recommendation is break it into little small bite-sized chunks, 10 to 30 questions at the most on a medical questionnaire. And then based on how they answered those, that particular survey, we'll present different data collection devices based on their needs. So if they said they have cardiovascular issues, you know, we may either right then follow up with a, a more detailed cardiovascular questionnaire, or we might wait a week. And send them an email in the future and say, hey, you know, you said you had cardiovascular disease. Can you come back and tell us a little bit more about that? And if you break it up into smaller bite-sized chunks, what we have found is the patients like it a heck of a lot better. They are more engaged because they're coming back on a more regular basis as opposed to being kind of a a one-and-done. And they only have to see those question sets that are really applicable to them. So I know that you guys run the NIH Down Syndrome Registry. Mm-hmm. Could you yeah. give an overview of, you know, number one, what does that functionally look like? But then number two, what are people doing with it? How is that being used? Sure. So that's actually a really large program at the NIH. You know, to their credit, this this is the major problem, is there's 30 advocacy groups in Down Syndrome in the U.S. that, you know, you would generally consider the major Down Syndrome ad- advocacy groups. Well, the problem is, what if every one of them turns up their own registry, right? You're going to have 30 Down syndrome registries all collecting different data, all at various levels, competing for the same patient population. So the NIH, it was great. They, they raised their hand and said, we'll fund it. And it's actually seven NIH agencies, but it's led out of NICHD, childhood disease. They funded it. And the deal was the advocacy groups are participating. If you go to the website, it looks like a NASCAR. There's so many logos on it. But that's what you want. The NIH funds this. Advocacy groups promote it. Patients engage in it. And they tell us about their experience. And this is a Down syndrome is a different kind of animal, too. Is it really a disease? You know, know, if, if you are involved in the Down syndrome community... Often, the, you know, these people are just different. So you have to treat it in a different way. And it's been a very interesting program. And the population has very much rallied around it and has embraced this as a tool 
to be represented and to learn from other folks. Now, some of the interesting research questions that have been asked that have not been implemented fully yet by the research community is, you know, Down syndrome folks have a higher prevalence of Alzheimer's, for example. Is there a crossover between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's? And could we learn from the Down syndrome community about other related diseases? And I think that's a very interesting concept because it's not just in this particular area. It's in all diseases. So again, 7,000 rare diseases. How do you look across and compare against other diseases? Let me ask you a specific question about that Down syndrome mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's correlation. Because I'm, I'm still a little bit confused how you would use the data in the registry in order to answer some of these questions. So, mm-hmm. so I basically have a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis that Down syndrome patients have a higher prevalence of Alzheimer's than, let's just say, the general population. Yep. So I would... First of all, I could use the data in the database to just make that pie chart. Mm-hmm. You know, I could just count yeah. the, the quantity of Alzheimer's sufferers. Yeah. But then what data would be in that database that I could gain greater insights into this? Or what would I be mm-hmm. looking for? So in this particular case, if we haven't already developed uh, an Alzheimer's specific questionnaire, which we have not. What could happen is a researcher could come and say, you know, how many folks say they have early onset Alzheimer's and get patient counts exactly like what you described. If there's enough, then let's set up an Alzheimer's specific questionnaire to get a little bit more information out of these folks. We would set that up, send an email out to everyone that said, you know, they may have early onset Alzheimer's, ask them to come back and complete a little bit more information. But then the option at that point is to, at the end of that Alzheimer's questionnaire, for example, if the respondent actually responded in a particular way that might qualify them for further research, we'll present a research study page to them and ask them if they would like to participate in an academic research study or a clinical trial outside of the registry. At that point, the patient can opt in to raise their hand and say, yeah, I would be willing to participate in, you know, that researcher's research study at University X. It's a pre-qualification, you know, recruitment tool at that point. And that would go into then more of an, an Alzheimer's study. One of the things I think the misperceptions that I had of registries was that it was more of a data mining operation where Mm -hmm. you're mining information that's already collected. And Mm -hmm. what I'm coming to realize through the course of this conversation is that it's really not that at all. It's almost like you are identifying patients, you know, you're kind of gathering a a very well-qualified mailing list so that if you're looking for individuals who meet certain criteria, you can actually Mm -hmm. prospectively have the opportunity to collect additional information. Yep. And the reason for that is if you think about the way the system is set up, not not our technical system, the medical research system, it rewards publications and grants. That's what really drives these academic researchers. In order to do that, they do need to do data mining. And this is part of the real major problem is all those academic researchers, they don't want to share that data because they're incented to hoard it. Well, if all these academic researchers set up their own patient registries, no one's going to have a clear pers- perspective on the general population. 
So, you, you know, maybe you call these more population studies, these particular registries, but then you can recruit them into one or more IRB approved research studies. And so what you end up with is an umbrella registry that is getting everyone that has a particular diagnosis, you know, under the same tent and then present multiple different research studies to this population that then the patient can opt into. Certainly there's high level information that can be gleaned from the registry and often patient counts is a, is a huge benefit, you know, just basic information, again, depending on where you are in the pipeline. Um, but being able to recruit into multiple research studies and not fragment the patient population is, is a huge advantage. Indeed. And I've been seeing a lot lately about people who are setting up registries that they intend to link to larger registries. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, ASCO has a very big oncology mm -hmm. registry. And then mm -hmm. you get individual, you know, pharma companies or maybe patient advocacy groups that are setting up their own registries and their hope is to link to the ASCO registry. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And <laughs> what do you think about it? I'm an IT guy. So Kyle's rule number one of IT is don't move the data. As soon as you move data around, you're going to have integrity issues. There's no global unique identifier. So how are you going to match these people up? Because people don't want to share contact information for privacy reasons and competitive reasons. So linking up is a loaded term. It's very difficult to pull multiple different databases together and make some form of sense out of it. For example, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We've got the world's largest registry. There's 50 others, 5-0, patient registries that address the muscular dystrophy space. And we have more than all of them combined. But the problem now is how do you look across all diseases? So there was a European Union initiative for many millions of dollars to try to pull all the data from all these registries together into a common repository. Well, the problem is everybody's asking different questions. There's no unique identifier. So the same patient could be in five different registries. And it just becomes a, a big jumble because people just, they're not incented to share that particular information. So this idea that we're going to magically link everything together, I personally, I think is a fallacy. Unless someone wants to use social security numbers as a way to uniquely identify a patient, I, how are you going to do it? Because you can't share all their contact information for privacy reasons. It, it, it's a real quandary. So we have, we have a, a different approach to that. Well, and what is this different approach? So what we do is we, we have what we call like an umbrella program, umbrella registry. So our infrastructure is more what we would call multi-tenant enabled, right? So you have unlimited numbers of diseases represented by unlimited numbers of advocacy groups used by unlimited numbers of researchers, but it's all in one place, for gosh sakes. And then it's just a matter of permissioning and role-based access. So what we do in our model is you can have defined diseases that are then represented by one or more organizations. And, and each of those organizations, it could be an academic research institute. It could be uh, an advocacy organization. They each get their own unique landing page. And we put their logo on it, their content on the landing page, and they have a specific URL to the registry. They promote that URL to their patient population. 
And when the patient clicks on it, it reskins the registry to represent that particular organization's program. When the patient registers in it, we tag them as belonging to that particular organization. And now we can control rights and access to data based on which organization that particular patient registered with. So in the Duchenne example, we could have 50 different landing pages. All these organizations can have their own brand on it. They can have their own content on the homepage. And they each get their own unique URL. And when they present that to the patient, the patient's tagged as belonging to that particular organization. And only that organization can see the contact information, can update it. It's their own private registry. You know, my example is what, you know, it's like Facebook, right? If every company page on Facebook was its own separate website and installation, the value of that goes down radically. The value is having it all in one place, but then you just control access to it. Basically, what you're saying is that all of the data is, at the end of the day, housed within one gigantic database. So if I'm sitting here in one organization with my one rare disease mm-hmm. and I'm inputting data, that that the data that is getting input from my little channel, if you will, mm-hmm is going into this larger stew so that those data points can be shared. I mean, maybe my one seemingly independent rare disease is actually closely correlated with another one that is, you know, no one suspected. But because all that data is aggregated behind the scenes, those types of things are going to come to the fore. Exactly. Now you can start doing what I call pan disease analysis. You know, if you've got 500 diseases all in one single database and you're collecting the same baseline information, of course, you're going to collect specific information on a disease by disease basis. But we can actually, if if we had a questionnaire and we do this all the time, it could be a questionnaire. We say, which diseases do you want it to be targeted to? You know, list them. And all we do is check the boxes and boom, there it is. This survey is now presented to those 20 different unrelated diseases, where if you did that in a typical model, you'd have to go to 20 different organizations and coordinate implementation of that questionnaire 20 different times, aggregate the data 20 different times on the back end just to do the analysis where we can do it with the push of a button. And I'd see that you'd have to really have a certain amount of scale in order to to pull this off. In order to have that back end be of the size that it would need to be in order to make that valuable, you, you would really have to have, you know, a, a certain critical mass mm-hmm. of customers that you're working with. Uh, yeah, it's take, you know, we've been doing this for almost 10 years now. <laughs> so it's, it definitely takes a while to get to that point. No question about it. So I heard you had some news, Kyle. So we do. And and this goes along the lines of data sharing. We are strong believers in patients should control their information and they should also be able to share their information. One of the challenges that we've seen is cost. I mean, back to the two moms sitting around the kitchen table, but even foundations that, that you know have a million or two in donations, registries are expensive. And reviewing and curating that data is even more expensive. So we actually are on this program called ClinGen. It's a large NIH-backed program. The idea is to do full genomes on 100,000 patients and collect their medical history and put that in a public database. Well, we're actually collecting the medical history behind ClinGen. Geisinger Health Systems is collecting and curating the genetic information. 
So our news is, you know, currently we have a free model for small organizations. If they want to make their data public, we'll turn their registry up for free. But in addition, we are now going to be offering through Geisinger in this ClinGen program. If you're a small disease, we'll give you a free registry. And if you ask patients to upload genetic test results, Geisinger Health System with professional genetic counselors will review that information and transcribe it for free. And we'll put all of this information into the public research database, ClinVar. You know, we're really putting our money where our mouth is on data sharing and openness. We, we will do this for you for free if you're willing to share the data in a public database. So the genetics aspect has been one that, that is of great interest to a lot of rare disease folks. It's, it's out of reach cost-wise. This is an opportunity to actually participate in that and get it done for no cost if you're willing to share this data publicly. Go patient crossroads. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but let me, let me ask you this. So say that you are in one of these organizations that is of the mind, you know, knowledge is power and you want to hoard your data. Do you mm -hmm. feel like that's a model that has a limited lifespan that that actually, you know, I've heard it said a number of different times that if we're going to transform healthcare, data has to be openly available. Mm -hmm. do, do you feel like the benefits of transparently sharing data that we have reached a tipping point where organizations that who are still actively involved in hoarding their data are going to get a bad rap and ultimately will be forced either by public opinion or, or simply by all of the downsides that you've discussed by having silos of, of information that these hoarders are going to be forced to share? Until the funding agencies force them to share, I don't believe they're going to share. My experience, it all boils down to money. You know, don't kid yourself. If you're a nonprofit, you're still a nonprofit corporation. You're still a company. And they compete like cats and dogs for money. And so do researchers. They compete like crazy for money. Often they see the data as power, and that's a competitive advantage for them to get more funding for their research. You know, and, and I understand it's the system. I'm not blaming them. It's the system. But until and the NIH has moved in this direction as well, right? If you're going to get NIH funding, you have to make this data open. However, they don't say how you have to make it open and where you make it open and in what form. So, you know, sharing data is one thing. Making it a shared, usable resource is a different thing. You know, you could argue sharing is just doing a publication. But what we're talking about is can you share row-level, patient-consented, de-identified data to whoever needs it? But the sharing aspect is really difficult. I, I think it has to be done. But I think a lot of people are, you know, talking the talk but not walking the walk. And that's why, you know, again, back to the Geisinger thing, we're, we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. We think someone needs to stand up and say, hey, hey, I may, may never make a penny on this. I don't care. It's the right thing to do. You have to share this data and go ask a patient. They want to share their data. The last thing they want to do is stuff it away. They, they want researchers to have it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there's going to be any significant movement forward in any of these rare diseases, you have to have a certain quantity of data in order to move the diseases forward. So if you're a patient, I could yeah. see the last thing that you would want to do is have somebody make money off of your data and have and at the same time be limiting sure. your chances to actually come up with a cure. Exactly. 
Exactly. If people are are looking to find out more information about the data that you have, or they're interested in building a registry, mm-hmm. where would you direct them, Kyle? Our website, patientcrossroads.com. You can see our current registries. There's a enrollment process where you can sign up to get a new registry. We'll have you up next week. Um, if you're a researcher, register, tell us what diseases you want access to. We'll give you access to the data. Fantastic. Well, I thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.